Paul Starr here with another installment of Law, Institutions, and Public Policy. Our subject this week is property rights. In fact, property rights, three American revolutions. Property is foundational to society. Who owns and controls property has always been a basis of political as well as economic power. Property rights have particular relevance to economic growth and innovation, as well as inequality. If we're going to think about the economy institutionally, we need to give close attention to the institution of property. Secure property rights have a relation to our subject of last week, institutions and economic growth. In Why Nations Fail, Darren Esamoglu and James Robinson pointed out that if ruling elites can arbitrarily seize property, they will undermine incentives to save and invest and thereby undermine growth. I don't disagree with that, but the relation of property rights to economic growth is more complicated. While states need to guarantee people's security against arbitrary expropriation, they also need to be able to change property rights for economies to grow. Indeed, the history of property rights is a history of dramatic changes. Sometimes those changes have meant creating new rights, and sometimes they have meant annulling old rights. As I emphasized in an earlier discussion, property rights, rather than being eternally fixed, have been highly malleable. Shifts in political power, moral values, and technologies have brought about major changes. At the founding of the United States, the law recognized the right of property in people, slavery, which we find hard to comprehend. Today, the law recognizes rights to property in the electromagnetic spectrum, which the founders would have found impossible to comprehend. You might imagine a revolution in property rights to be something like a socialist revolution in which property was violently expropriated. I'm going to suggest that the kind of capitalist economy we have is a result of property rights revolutions, which in some respects did involve expropriating rights as well as creating them. My discussion will focus on three such transformations. The first is the transformation in property and inheritance law at the time of the American Revolution. The second is the transformation of property rights at the time of the first Industrial Revolution in the early 19th century. And the third is the transformation that took place with the abolition of slavery as a result of the Civil War. We'll also consider one other case, the change in the property rights of landowners with the development of the airplane. But before we get to those changes in property rights, we need to consider the fundamental question, what is property? After all, if the interpretation of property has changed so significantly, what unifies all its different historical forms and applications? Perhaps the most common traditional view of property comes from the 18th century English legal commentator, William Blackstone. Property, Blackstone held, is dominion. In his words, that sole and despotic dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world. In other words, property consists not of the things themselves, but of the rights over those things. Property, in this view, defines the relation between people and things, whether those things are material or intangible. Moreover, despite 
his definition of property as sole and despotic dominion, Blackstone recognized what later writers referred to as the bundle of rights that make up property. The bundle of rights can include, for example, the right to possess a thing, the right to sell it, to lease it, to subdivide it, to devise it in a will, and even to use it up or destroy it. If the thing in question is land, there may also be grazing rights, water rights, mineral rights, and so on. If the thing is a work of literature, there may be publishing rights in print, electronic rights, foreign rights, theatrical rights, and so on. Some rights may be valuable and others not at all. Sadly, no one has ever offered to buy the theatrical rights to any of my books. Considered as a bundle of rights, property can be sliced and diced with some rights held by one party and other rights held by other parties. Instead of thinking of property as defining relations between people and things, however, we can also think of property as defining relations among people. In this view, it's the ability to exclude others from the thing that constitutes property. Let, let's imagine that as a solitary astronaut, you went to an otherwise uninhabited planet. What need would you have for the concept of property there? The concept of property comes into play, according to this interpretation, not in defining the relation of people to things, but in defining the relation of people to one another. The relations that property defines are often power relations. The relations, for example, between the owner of a business and the employees, or between that business and other businesses. Now, some analysts might consider the relation of people to one another to be the true significance of property. But we don't need to choose between these two interpretations. If we take the value of the environment seriously, it seems entirely appropriate to say that property rights also defines, that property also defines a relation of people to things, in particular, our relation to the natural world and other species besides our own. Instead of a concept of absolute dominion over nature, we may want to qualify that idea. The idea that the property owner has a sovereign right to exploit it to the fullest, even to destroy it or use it up. Environmental regulations set such limits. In fact, some people suggest an even more radical step, giving elements of the natural environment legal representation. In 2017, New Zealand did just that when it enacted a law to settle a 140-year-old dispute over the Wanganui River, I may not have the pronunciation right, the country's third largest. The law declared the river to be a legal person, a living whole that can own property, incur debts, and petition the courts. In practice, as was reported at the time of the law's enactment, two guardians act for the river, one appointed by the government and the other by a confederation of indigenous people. By declaring the river to be a legal person, Supporters of the law hope to strengthen legal actions against those threatening the river with environmental damage. I mention this example to emphasize the range of legal possibilities for dealing with the things of the natural world. If a corporation can be a legal person, 
Okay, why not a river? Legal fictions can do extraordinary things. This kind of legal flexibility is related to another central issue, whether property rights are so-called natural rights, or whether property, in the words of the 19th century British utilitarian Jeremy Bentham, is, quote, entirely the creation of law. Bentham insisted that while an individual can possess something, possession becomes property only through the community's recognition of that right. As Stuart Banner astutely points out in one of the assigned readings, the natural rights argument can be used either to justify the status quo of private ownership or, just as easily, to argue that because all people have a natural right to property, they should all share equally in it and own it in common. Conversely, the rejection of the natural rights theory of property doesn't logically imply a preference for more social regulation. You could say that for utilitarian reasons, although property is entirely created by law, private property rights should be aggressively protected against any limitation. But in practice, the view of property as a legal rather than a natural right tends to be associated with acceptance of greater social regulation. Let's turn now to the historical development of property rights and to the revolutionary transformations of those rights in the past. Our understanding of property rights is the outcome of a historical process in which the public and private spheres came to be differentiated. As we discussed in the first half of the semester, public and private were commingled in medieval and early modern societies. The two realms of sovereignty and property were mixed together. For example, government offices could be bought and sold and passed on as an inheritance, as property. No sharp lines separated the ruler's personal wealth and household from the state treasury. Public officials were expected to receive much of their income from direct payments by people needing action by the government, payments that today we would consider bribes. At the same time, the great estates of the aristocracy conveyed some powers we associate today exclusively with the government. A lord, for example, exercised police and judicial powers over the tenants on his estate. Yet while a lord had extraordinary powers, he did not hold that estate as individual property in the modern sense we understand the term. Often he held it as night service land. In return for his land, he owed the king military service, if called upon. And although the lord's tenants and local villagers also owed him labor or rent, they often had customary and legal rights in the same land. In particular, they often had so-called rights of common, rights to collect wood, to hunt or fish, or to graze their animals on the lord's estate. In addition, the lord himself was often from a legal standpoint, only a tenant for life, limited in his ability to sell or subdivide the land because it had to be passed on in its entirety to his heir. The impetus behind these legal restrictions was to keep the family patrimony intact and to prevent any individual along the family line from diminishing or squandering it. All this was designed to preserve the greatness of the aristocratic family's lineage. A key characteristic of inheritance systems is whether they concentrate wealth on a single heir 
or distribute assets more equally among children. If the system concentrates wealth, attempting to preserve the family patrimony, it's called a patrimonial system. The principal alternative is partable inheritance, that is, the division of assets among heirs, sometimes only among the sons, the so-called equality of brothers, and sometimes among all children, male and female, as well as the surviving spouse. Two devices, primogeniture and entail, that are typically used in patrimonial systems, such as the one that dominated England for centuries. Primogeniture is the right of succession or inheritance belonging to the firstborn, usually the firstborn male. As a legal rule in England, primogeniture applied only to the real estate, not to movable property, and it served as a default. That is, it was the rule when there was no written will or wherever a will was ambiguous. But since those with great wealth usually did not die without a will, the more important English legal institution for inheritance of great wealth was uh, the entail, and also family settlements. An entail was a legal, was a private legal restriction on the inheritance of the family estate, typically requiring the real property to be undivided and to descend in tail male, that is, through the eldest son or surviving male relative. Once land was entailed, a later will could not reverse it. A family settlement was an irrevocable agreement, usually drawn up on the marriage of the eldest son, that allocated some lesser property to his siblings. This system was well designed to maintain concentrated wealth, and in England it did exactly that. Primogeniture was introduced into England in 1066 at the time of the Norman Conquest. It was finally abolished in 1925. Entails lasted for centuries, thanks to land surveys going back to soon after the Norman Conquest. More is known about the distribution of land ownership in England over a longer period of time than anywhere else in the world. Despite all the changes England underwent, landed property remained astonishingly concentrated. As late as 1873, 5,000 landowners held three-quarters of all the land in the British Isles. Most of the British, six of every seven households, owned no real property at all. But thanks to the American Revolution, the United States developed very differently. The American Revolution is often thought of as a socially conservative revolution, but it did bring about major changes in the structure of society. Property rights and inheritance laws were one aspect of those changes. The revolutionaries agreed with the defenders of British aristocracy about one point. Concentrated ownership of land was instrumental in the preservation of monarchical rule. And for that very reason, the revolutionary generation gave high priority to changing the rules of inheritance to encourage land to be divided up. In the revolutionary era and early republic, one state after another abolished entail and primogeniture. On this point, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were, were in agreement. We may not think today of equality among siblings as an important form of equality, but in a world where wealth had been concentrated on the eldest male and where that system had supported domination by an aristocracy, partable inheritance was a big deal. 
The rule adopted in America was testamentary freedom, the right of testators to pass on property however they wished. Unlike the more radical laws adopted during the French Revolution, which required equal division among all children, male and female. For other reasons as well, the American Revolution fell far short of ensuring economic equality. With the Industrial Revolution, new forms of concentrated wealth appeared. The Revolutionary Era also failed to abolish one crucial source of inequality, property in people. It also did not equalize the property rights of men and women. But today, considerable social science and historical evidence supports the view of 18th century revolutionaries that changes in inheritance were vital in entrenching a republican form of government. In agrarian societies, high levels of landholding inequality are, in, in fact, in, inhospitable to stable democracy. Changing the inheritance laws, together with later policies like the Homestead Act, created more widely distributed landholding in America compared to Great Britain. In other respects, the American Revolution and the early republic also brought about a transformation of property rights. The reading from Stuart Banner's book, American Property, presents these changes well. The complex system of British land tenures came to an end. This was already mostly the case in the American colonies, but it was affirmed after independence. In the United States, title to land was free and clear of any obligations to higher authorities or any rights of common. A whole series of old property rights, such as ad vosum, which was the right of large landowners to appoint a minister, and property in public offices disappeared. The Revolutionary Era also began the emancipation of slaves in the northern states. But by leaving slavery in place in the south, the founding generation set in motion the development of two different property rights regimes in the early American Republic, one that recognized the right to own other people and coerce labor from them, and one that didn't. Two different societies grew up in the United States, one in the North and the other in the South. The first Industrial Revolution, the phase of the Industrial Revolution associated with water power and the steam engine, got underway in the North at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th. As it advanced, the law saw a shift from a static, agrarian conception of property rights to a dynamic, instrumental, pro-developmental conception. Earlier, in talking about the history of the corporation, we already discussed a legal case that exemplified the early 19th century shift. This was the Charles River Bridge case, in which the Supreme Court, in 1837, refused to presume a monopoly in the grant that Massachusetts had originally given to the investors in the bridge, when another group of investors proposed building a second bridge across the Charles River in Boston. I'm going to quote again from the court's ruling because it's such a clear expression of the priority being given economic development. While the rights of private property are sacredly guarded, we must not forget that the community also have rights and that the happiness and well-being of every citizen depends on their faithful preservation. Now, the word preservation here is a bit misleading. 
in this and other decisions, the courts were changing their interpretation of property rights to favor economic growth. Industrial development created new conflicts over property rights. Riparian rights, that is, rights along rivers, provide a case in point. In the 18th century, as Morton Horowitz writes in his book, The Transformation of American Law, the right to absolute dominion over land was assumed to confer on an owner the power to prevent any use of his neighbor's land that conflicted with his own quiet enjoyment. That phrase, quiet enjoyment, expressed the traditional static understanding of property. When conflicts arose between neighbors, traditional legal rules tended to favor agrarian uses. One rule favored natural uses of land, which gave priority, in the case of water rights, to the appropriation of water for domestic use and for agriculture. A second rule gave priority to older uses of land. According to this rule, whoever was first in time was also first in right. These doctrines of the common law clashed with the spirit of economic development as mills and dams began to be built in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Now imagine you long owned a farm downstream from where a mill owner began building a dam, thereby obstructing the flow of water on which you had always depended for irrigation. In the past, you could have depended on the courts to back you up. But in the early 1800s, that changed. Courts shifted from favoring the farmer to favoring the mill owner on the grounds that the mill's development would provide the greater benefit. In short, the Industrial Revolution didn't only involve the creation of new wealth. It also involved taking away rights from others, in this case, water rights from farmers, for which they were not compensated. While industrialization began to transform the North and later the Midwest, slavery not only remained the basis of plantation agriculture in the South, it grew and expanded there. The population of enslaved people increased from 700,000 in 1790 to nearly 4 million in 1860. By that time, on the eve of the Civil War, slaveholders had about $3 billion invested in slaves. At that time, more than the total national investment in railroads and manufacturing combined. 60% of America's wealthiest men were slaveholders. As I mentioned earlier, the revolutionary era led to the development of two property rights regimes, one based on a right to own other human beings and coerce labor from them, and the other based on free labor. Although slavery existed in the North before the American Revolution, there was a crucial difference. To borrow a distinction used in studies of the ancient world, the Northern colonies were societies with slaves, while the Southern colonies became slave societies. A slave society has an economy organized around slavery in a way that a society with slaves does not. The northern states were able to end slavery in the late 1700s and early 1800s, mainly through so-called free womb laws that gave the children of slaves their freedom upon reaching adulthood. Slavery in the South became the basis of political and economic power and social relationships that penetrated every aspect of Southern life. Under the South's law of slavery, masters had absolute despotic dominion over their slaves, the kind that Blackstone wrote about in Defining Property. 
Slavery was so fundamental to wealth and power in the South, and the costs of emancipation so unimaginably large that Southern elites were unwilling to give up slavery voluntarily. But when the Civil War ended, the slaveholders' loss of that property was as absolute as their dominion had been. Together, the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment represented the greatest liquidation of concentrated wealth in American history. The most stupendous act of sequestration in the history of Anglo-Saxon jurisprudence, as the historians Charles and Mary Beard called it, referring to the Emancipation Proclamation alone. I'm not suggesting we shed any tears for the slaveholders' loss. The former slaves were never compensated for all the labor that they and their ancestors had rendered. The promises made to them during Reconstruction were never fulfilled, and the subsequent decades of Jim Crow denied them equal protection of the laws, including protection of their property. America still lives with the consequences today. One final example will illustrate the changes that American law has made in property rights. This is the case of air travel, beginning with the Wright brothers' invention of the airplane in 1903. At that time, common law doctrine held that the owner of land owned everything beneath it down to the center of the earth and everything above to an, infin to an indefinite extent upwards. So, were pilots guilty of trespass by flying their planes over property that wasn't theirs? Imagine if airlines had to pay for the right to cross everyone's property along the route of a flight. Of course, that's not what happened. Congress declared the airways public. But the issue nonetheless came to the Supreme Court in 1945, when two farmers in North Carolina sued because low-flying military aircraft were apparently causing chickens to fly into a frenzy and kill themselves. The farmers thought they deserved compensation because the government was unconstitutionally depriving them of their property. The court acknowledged that from time immemorial, the common law had held that ownership of land extended ever upward. But here's what Justice William O. Douglas wrote in the court's ruling. The air is a public highway, as Congress has declared. Were that not true, every transcontinental flight would subject the operator to countless trespass suits. Common sense revolts at the idea. To recognize such private claims to the airspace would clog these highways, seriously interfere with their control and development in the public interest, and transfer into private ownership that to which only the public has a just claim. So, too bad for you, North Carolina farmer. No compensation for your loss of a property right that you thought you had. That's not part of the property rights bundle anymore. The security of property rights is important, but is it so important as to override all other moral and economic considerations? Obviously not. Property rights change. They often need to change. We just don't like to acknowledge how changeable they are.